The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. So if you'll turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to get to that uh, passage in just one second. Uh, But in in terms of my warm-up, to that, I need to set a context for what, uh, how I'm going to approach the passage tonight. So uh, the book of Proverbs is a collection of wisdom that uh, was given to us from uh, Solomon and some other wise leaders in uh, history, uh, collected together uh, and presented as part of God's word. And as such, it's kind of difficult to find structure in some of the parts of Proverbs. So we have to kind of understand what the purpose of the book is. So I'm going to take the perspective of trying to understand the Proverbs in the way that the early church would have, in the way that the, after uh, Jesus ascended and returned to the fathers and the, and the church is now going back to the scripture to know more about who Jesus is. Because Jesus says this scripture speaks about him, right? And in the early church, they actually thought that Jesus was, in many ways, the voice of wisdom speaking in the book, which is going to get a little weird in a second. Okay, so um, how, do under, how did they understand wisdom coming to the scriptures to begin with? So uh, I'm, I'm quoting a, a good friend of mine, Mark Schaefer, who uh, is a student uh, in my cohort with me in my uh, degree, and he is working on what's called the two virtue canon of the Hellenistic world. So the two virtue canon is basically the secular version of what we have when, God, when Jesus says or answers, what are the two great commandments? And so Jesus answers the two great commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And love your neighbor as yourself. In the secular Hellenistic world, they would have thought of it a little bit differently. So they saw it as understanding an awe for God. The Greek word there is eusebia. uh, Or having a purity before God, hostihoites. This is the only Greek you're going to get at the sermon, so write it all down. Okay. So, uh, and that would be a love for or a respect for the divine. However, in secular Hellenism, they define the divine. And then on the other virtue was philanthropia, kindness to your fellow man, or diakaiosune, righteousness in your actions and your behaviors, right? So you have love of God and right behavior before God, and love of man and the right behavior before man. And uh, I'm going to actually steal something that Mark wrote uh, recently. He says, for Jewish and Christian tradition, spiritual practice and social justice are two sides of the same coin. And one-sided coins have no value. Philo of Alexandria says brilliantly in his book, De De Coleco, that some are lovers of God, while others are lovers of humankind, but both only go halfway in their virtue. Rare is the path that practices the latter without leaving the former undone. So, I want you to understand the book of Proverbs as teaching you how to live out practically what love of God and love of your neighbor looks like. So, as we enter into this book, maybe we should review how Jesus said it, right? So, 
Three times is recorded in the New Testament, Jesus' word about the two great commandments. Uh, and usually it's a lawyer who comes to him and says, uh, teacher, tell me what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says, there's actually two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5. This is the greatest and most important commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. And then he closes. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, the two great commandments pull from two parts of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament that we have. Deuteronomy 6, where we saw, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then opens a section which, which reworks or redefines or represents, however you want to see it, the do commands of the Decalogue, which is things like don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. So loving God is doing what is right in this world. And Leviticus 19, the verse I Verse 18, that love your neighbor as yourself, closes a section about how you live holy and righteous lives before God. So the love of neighbor is the life of holiness, right? So there's a tension here that we're going to open with just in our understanding of what Jesus means by do these two commands. So let me first talk about the three large areas that the book of Proverbs is going to focus on. Again, we're not going to hit everything in this series. Uh, and again, it's the, this is more of a lens or my perspective of what a lens should be for the book of Proverbs. So the book of Proverbs speaks in three areas, the practical, the political, and the personal. First, the practical. How we behave ultimately reflects what we believe. Let me say that again so you can write it down. How we behave ultimately reflects what we believe. So, if we go into the New Testament and look at what wisdom looks like in the New Testament, and there are many passages, and I'm going to make reference to them uh, today, we see that the New Testament views two types of life in this world. There is the life governed by the Spirit, which we find in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Hebrews and 2 Peter, just in case you missed it the first time. And then always parallel to the life governed by the Spirit is the life defined by the flesh. And the two are incompatible. They are irreconcilable. And they cannot exist together in one person. As the book of James says, can a fresh spring produce salt water? And can a grapevine produce thorns? Right? You cannot live a schizophrenic life according to the Bible. You either live in wisdom governed by the Spirit, or you live in foolishness defined by the flesh. Now, let me get real personal because I you know, brought a short sermon in order to not step on your toes, and it ended up to be a seven-point sermon that is definitely going to step on your toes. So, how you behave ultimately reflects how you believe. Let me ask you a question. 
What did you write on Facebook this week? What did you like on Snapchat this week? How is your online persona reflecting whether you live a life of wisdom or a life of foolishness? And in our culture, this is very important. Whole friendships, whole relationships have been redefined in our modern age in which what someone puts online is misinterpreted, misapplied, and becomes evidence for the prosecution against them. And that does not just apply for our political leaders. And more importantly, it applies how we interact with each other as friends. Or friends. Right? And some of you are following some people who are not following the Spirit. Can I just say that? And now, let's go to the second point. So that was just number one. Now we've got two more things that we're going to talk about in the book of Proverbs. So that was the practical. Now let's talk about the political. Our dealings ultimately reflect on whom we depend. Let me say it one more time. Our dealings ultimately reflect on whom we depend. How we interact with those that we do not call friends, we call neighbors, we call employees, we call business partners, is equally governed by wisdom or foolishness. In much of the book of Proverbs, there's much to say about what it looks like to be foolish, and some of that foolishness has to do with how we treat our money. If we go to the New Testament again and look at the number of sayings that Jesus says about certain topics, more than his discussions of the afterlife is his discussions of money. There might be something to that. Because how we deal in this world with the things that will pass away with time and with rust and with moth and with the forgetfulness of the future generations is just a token of what our life looks like from God's perspective. Two, we have one more to go. Here we go. And we haven't even gotten the passage yet. I'm just setting it up. So, you know, this is your time to leave if you want to go. Okay. No one's moving. I was really hoping no one would move there. I was hoping someone like us. Yeah. So how we believe ultimately reflects whom, sorry, how we behave ultimately reflects on whom we believe. Our dealings ultimately reflect on whom we depend. And finally, the personal, our conduct ultimately reflects our contents. Our conduct ultimately reflects our contents. So, in Mark 7, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is asked about the washing of hands. The Pharisees come to him and say, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Don't you know that everyone's supposed to wash their hands so they do not become unclean? And Jesus' response to them is, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out. Because what goes into your mouth just goes through you and comes out the other side. But what comes out of your mouth reflects what your heart contains. 
Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul reflects on this and he says, flee from all sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, let us now turn to our passage with the lens properly focused on what we're going to see today. So in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, wisdom calls out in the streets. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. How long, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking? And you fools hate knowledge. If you obey my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Since I called out, but you refused, extended my hand, but no one paid attention. Since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I in turn will laugh at your command calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and when your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you. Then they will call me, but I won't answer. Then they will search for me, but won't find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel and rejected all my correction. So they will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the apostasy of the foolish will, be, will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and will be undisturbed by the dread of danger. All right. So, I told you there's going to be a lot of points, so I hope you brought a lot of paper and pens. Here we go. So, there are four actions and three reactions that we see in this passage. So we're going to talk about the interaction between you and wisdom when wisdom comes knocking at your door. All right, so we love that. I don't know if you've ever seen this image, but when I was growing up in my, uh, with my grandmother, she had a picture of Jesus knocking at the door, right? Lo, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever will come to me right? Is wisdom calling you, right? The image is this Proverbs and Revelation brought together where Jesus pleads with us as wisdom to answer him. So there'll be four actions and three reactions. Okay, so the first of all, wisdom alarms us to the danger. Wisdom alarms us to the danger. Now, we need to reflect on this passage in terms of those two lifestyles, right? The life governed by the Spirit and the life defined by the flesh. 
On one side, we see love as given to us by God, as revealed to us in Christ, and as enabled in us by the Spirit. And on the other side, the Scripture always represents it as promiscuity, sexual immorality, adultery, depravity. The opposite of love is fleshliness in its most obvious form. Right? If we live a life of love governed by the Spirit, we will not partake in the desires of sexual immorality and depravity. Now, we need to hear this in our culture today. As we are slowly, like the frog in the boiling water, becoming accustomed to less and less clothing and more and more skin. Now, I'm not trying to be up here being a prude. I'm trying to say that we are being warned. Wisdom calls, in the, calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries out above all of the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. I hope that I'm not going to steal the thunder of my brother's messages coming up in the next few weeks, but... Proverbs uses the image of sexual morality to exemplify what wisdom and foolishness are doing. They are both described as women trying to persuade you to come be with them. And this is a difficult image for us to understand when we look at the scripture. That sexuality in itself is not bad. Sexuality is a gift given from God before the fall as part of his good creation. But sin has taken God's good gift and made it a prison. Okay? A prison, right? Again, I'm not going to step on the verses that are coming up in chapters 2 through 4. But there are some pointed imagery there about what happens when you follow the wrong woman into her house, right? <clears throat> now, let me cut straight to the point and go ahead and get all the foot stomping out of the way. Oh, that's a lie. I was, there will be more foot stomping to come, but let me get some foot stomping on the way. One of the issues that we as the church have to confront and come to terms with is that attraction and desire is not the same as behavior. And we will often excuse the behavior of one group and their desires and yet condemn the desires and the behavior wholesale of another group. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible sees all sexual temptation the same. It doesn't matter whether you were attracted to someone of the opposite sex as you or someone of the same sex as you. All sexual immorality is seen the same. And we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater on one side and sweep it under the carpet on the other side. Okay? 
Romans chapter 1 condemns certain behaviors, and in that passage, ironically, it sees the end point of sexual desire in something that we in our culture may consider icky. But it is behavior, not desire, that it is condemning. Right? It's not that we have sinful desires that make us unredeemable, unsavable, and far from God. It is that we are giving ourselves over to those desires that God condemns, right? So on one side, we have the love of God and the love that comes from God. On the other side, we have foolishness and sin personified or embodied by sexual immorality. If we continue on to 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, make no bones about that both the heterosexual and the homosexual are under God's righteous wrath for their embodied, enacted sin. Remember, I'm using particular words there, right? That you have desires are not bad in themselves. It is if you allow yourself to take those desires, let those desires take you versus you take those desires under the control of the Spirit. Okay. And in a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, he actually has this very funny part. He says, I wrote you to say, be free from sexual morality. I didn't mean by that that you couldn't talk to people who are in the world dealing with sexual immorality. The problem I'm having is that you have sexual morality in your church. So let me step on some toes. This is not a new phenomenon for Christians. To be forgiving the adultery and the immorality of the church members who may, be, who may be the biggest tithers or the most frequent attenders or the most important people in a society and then push away those who are seeking for true love in all the wrong places. And if Paul's going to bring the hammer down on the Corinthians, then the Lord Jesus will bring the hammer down on us. And will we be shown right when the day of testing comes? Will we be able to say that we embodied love, agape love, God's love who loves everyone? the heterosexual adulterer, the homosexual adulterer, and the person who is perfectly pure, right? Before God's righteous throne, there is no difference between us. All sin is sin. So again, let me ask, how's your online persona going these days? How is your perception in the marketplace going these days? How is your personal life going these days, right? Love under God's self-control is our guard against promiscuity and temptation, right? The book of Proverbs describes a righteous, wise life as one embodied in an intimate relationship ordained by God. That was point number one. We got six more to go. Point number two, when wisdom alarms, folly 
avoids. How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mock? How long will you mockers mock mocking? Uh, and how, and you fools, hate knowledge. See, the point was that they didn't know what wisdom was in this passage. They could hear it everywhere, in the streets, in the square, above everything, and at the city gate. There was no, there was no not knowing what wisdom was trying to say. So this is an active avoidance of the truth. You know what also is an active avoidance of the truth, according to Romans 1? For though they knew him as God, they did not esteem him as God, but chose to worship the creation and not the creator. And you may think that our culture is free because we don't have statues of eagles at our street corners. And we don't have temples to Athena at the top of the street. But you and me, my friends, are still living in a culture of idolatry in which we have propped up the things of this world above the giver of those things and goodness. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and Colossians 3, 5. It's very helpful because it's 5, 3, 5, 3, 5. Say, greed is idolatry. Ooh, see, I, got, I, got no, I didn't get an amen for that one. That got real, that hit someone home here. Someone is thinking about that. As they are looking across the street at the Joneses' new boat. As they are looking across the cubicle at their, their colleagues' new paycheck. As they're looking in their bank account and hoping there were more zeros behind that. Okay, still got a lot of silence there, so, you know, I'm, I'm gotten to the root here. We, we're saying something. I'm saying some, someone in here. Okay. <clears throat> we want to avoid that conversation, Andrew, because we live in a society governed by money. No, we live in a society governed by God who gives us money. Money burns. And money goes out the door faster than it comes in some days. Right? <clears throat> and what's interesting about that Romans 1 passage again is that every time it describes this shift to idolatry, it describes it in active terms. For though they knew God, they did not glorify God. Active terms. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They didn't drift away into ignorance. They chose to stop up their ears and close their eyes and ignore the warnings everywhere. Let me get a little specific. We are in the midst of a political year in which we have one party that wants to take our money and another party that also wants to take our money. 
You thought I was going to do something there, didn't you? <laughs> one party wants to take our money and use it for one purpose, and another party wants to take the money and use it for a different purpose. Has anyone looked at how much money we owe ourselves these days? A trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. That's a one with 12 zeros behind it. Because part the political parties persuade us that if we will give them the money, oh, then all of our hopes and dreams will be there. All right? They persuade us with what we want to hear while they put their hands in our pockets. And ultimately, what's the real problem with this system is that they turn us onto each other as we also are trying to get someone else's money to pay that bill. Right? They have persuaded us to focus our eyes on their salvation. What they will promise us, the heaven they can provide with the money that is burning in our pockets. And we have become idolaters nonetheless. So how do we combat that? How do I combat this cultural tidal wave propelling me to worship money. Gratitude. Gratitude. The political parties are not the ones who are providing your daily bread. You do not pray to the Republicans or the Democrats or the President or the Supreme Court or the Congress for your daily bread. And yet it is always provided for you. Through the jobs that we have, through the resources that we have, through the ways that we support each other in so many ways that may have nothing to do with our politics. And that Gratitude must embody in us joy. And that joy will defeat any attempt of idolatry and greed to take us. I can't be greedy if I'm grateful. Because greed is really saying that this is not enough for me. But when this is enough for me, I find that I have more than enough to share with those around me. <clears throat> then wisdom advises us. In verse 23, if you respond to my warning, some translations have it, if you turn back to my reprimand, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Wisdom advises now, what is the problem with our souls so that we do not want to listen to advice? Thank you. The word is pride. We think that we don't need advice. As the kids would say, I'm grown. 
<clears throat> well, pride leads to two main consequences. Hatred of wisdom and jealousy of success. Hatred of wisdom and jealousy of success. And it embodies itself most pointedly in our life in slander. Oh, let's get back to that Facebook again. Let's talk about it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, it says, We must guard our tongues, I'm paraphrasing here, lest we lead others astray. Here's a fascinating thing about social media. You can say something, and millions of people can see it. And we have built whole careers for some people off of those millions of people's likes and follows and subscriptions. And then we look at those people and we wonder how they are so successful and why no one's following my blog. No one's liking my Instagram. No one wants to be my Facebook friend. I'm hitting some nerves here. Okay. And in the end, slander, in the, port, in the perspective of subtle, what is the word for it? Um, I actually have lost the word I was trying to say, sorry. Uh, um, yeah, I said enough. Uh, subtle insinuations about certain people. I think it's called, I remember now, fake booking. I just want y'all to pray about a situation in my life. Mm-hmm. Pray about it. Okay. You mean tell you that you write about it. You mean like it and say, oh yeah, I'm also having that situation with her right now. And it doesn't get so vague booking anymore as well. We start circling the wagons, picking sides, and propelling in the street what we used to call gossip. Oh, Andrew, you done said it now. For everyone to see. So the passage started with wisdom calling out the streets, but some people on Facebook are calling out some other things on the streets. Okay, let me just move on. Let me just move on. Okay. The way, however, to defeat the traps of hatred and jealousy are ultimately the peace and patience that comes from God. Right? It's very interesting that the... The Spirit tells Paul to remind us at several occasions that vengeance is the Lord's. It is not the one with the most followers on Instagram. It is not the one who has the, most, the best meme on Facebook. God will make right everything in this world 
And that should scare you a little bit. Because he's going to come for you as much as he's going to come for them. So, are you walking in the way of wisdom these days? Verses 24 and 25. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected my counsel and did not accept my correction. And if we can jump down to its parallel in verses 29 and 30. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel and rejected all my correction. When wisdom advises, folly abhors. And I was looking for an A word, so you have to let me find that word. Abhor, abhorrence, is this kind of disgust and revulsion, this pulling back from wisdom. Because wisdom is not telling you the things you want to hear. Wisdom is not telling you that you're right, you're right. Wisdom's telling you truth, which cuts to the core. So, there are two sort of actions within this. There's first the refusal of wisdom. Right? They hated knowledge and did not choose the Lord. They refused when I extended my hand and no one paid attention. They, the action of refusing wisdom is not just disinterest. It is that lurking sin of hatred. But now it's not hatred of your neighbor, it's hatred of truth and the God behind that. And now we've come to it. We've come to the point of the passage, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind until he tells me something I don't want to hear. Love your neighbor as yourself as long as they tell me that I'm pretty. Oh, oh, that's not how it says? Do I need to go back? It doesn't. It says, love your neighbors as yourself. And love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart. There is no room for hatred of anyone if you live the life of wisdom. But also then there's the sort of second action, or the second step. There's not only just the refusal of wisdom that moves to the ignoring of wisdom. A rejection that is much more palpable, palpable and yet much more pleasant for us. We just turn off the TV. Turn off the radio. We only listen to what we want to, which brings us back to social media. What's very interesting about these programs is that the more you like one thing, the more it shows you. Right? You search for a vacuum cleaner, you know, on Google, and then you suddenly start seeing vacuum cleaner ads everywhere. But you don't notice that you start searching for one perspective and keep hearing it over and over and over again. And it becomes so easy for us to just tune out all that toilsome wisdom and listen to only what we want to hear. 
But we must surrender our boasting and our knowledge to God's wisdom. And that surrender is ultimately kindness. Later on in Proverbs, it's going to say, the wounds of a friend are kind. That's a weird sentence. That when someone comes and cuts you open and pokes at it, that that is kindness to you. But it is. Because there's lurking inside of you an infection called sin. And it might be comfortable for you not to do anything about it. But we need to get to the root of that matter. I had a root canal recently. It wasn't actually that bad. People always talk about root canals. I said, have you felt your jaw before the root canal? Drilling my tooth with no anesthesia, that's a cakewalk compared to what it felt like in my sinuses for three straight weeks. But that infection had been brewing there for months. It only finally got to the point that it pushed and poked at the nerve. It doesn't mean that it wasn't there. It just means I didn't feel it. And I can fill up my stomach with ibuprofen and ignore the warnings. Or I can do something about it. Something very painful and invasive and destructive to this life that I was leading. And, by the way, expensive. But necessary. We must surrender our boasting and knowledge to the kindness of God's wisdom. Jump back up with me to verse 26, and then we'll jump around a little. So now we're going to get to sort of the result of all this. We have this conversation going on between wisdom and foolishness, wisdom and foolishness, and we have to find which path we're going to follow. Again, the image that's going to come up in the next few chapters is wisdom and follow trying to persuade you to follow them down the street. So which path will we choose? The first path is the result of ruin. Verse 26. I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like the whirlwind. When trouble and stress overcome you. We jump to verses 31 and 32. I will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted. Oh, sorry. They will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the apostasy of the inexperienced will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. One path leads to destruction. And interestingly enough, that path in the way the New Testament approaches wisdom and re-sort of tells us about Proverbs is the path of division. This is another word for our political year. When we have become a nation at war with ourselves. When we have picked sides 
and will defend them to the death. See, politics is a little bit like the public transit bus. It doesn't get you to the door. It just gets you as close as it can. And yet some of y'all are putting out knives like it's giving you door-to-door service. That political party has risen in the ranks of your heart. Am I wrong? But the path that Jesus walked when he was with us was one not of division, not of faction, not of power, but of gentleness. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus possessed all glory and gave it up for us. To live a life actually below us. He was our servant. The king and creator of the universe came to serve you and show you the way. Right? And what's interesting about that is one of the temptations that Satan brings to Jesus in the wilderness is what? Bow to me, and I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. They didn't belong to him. Right? But how many of our fellow citizens have fallen for that trap? And I'm not just talking about politics out there in the secular sphere. There are politics in the church today. Rivalries and dissension and envies and factions are forming Routinely, we see clashes in the social media between people who are supposed to be our spiritual leaders. I was telling my wife recently that I was observing a conversation on a social media platform about some people I had respected for years. And it broke my heart, the things they were saying about each other. You would think that they were running for Congress with the negative smear ads they were posting on their social platforms. Who would then turn around with their next post, their next tweet, their next thing, and give you a Bible verse. She had to talk me off of, you know, Loading up the hybrid and <clears throat> going and giving them a word from the Lord. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> she was like, you got to go to work tomorrow. You can't do that. Okay, so, dissensions and factions always arrive from envy. Right? Because I'm not the person at the top of the heap. Jesus doesn't need to be the person at the top of the heap. He can give that up, and he can take that back, right? 
And that is why he has the name that is above all other names, the name to which we will all bow the knee. You see, in the end, our spiritual leaders and our political leaders who have fought their entire lives to get the top of the heap will be bowing before the Lord who was a servant. And apostasy and complacency are the same thing. See, now I'm going to turn to those of you who are not trying to be the top of the heap. You're just trying to stay off the battlefield, man. I'm just not going to get into the middle of this conversation. I'm not going to say anything. That is also the opposite of faithfulness. See, I was either foolishness or brave enough to get up here with five pieces of paper and step on your toes repeatedly. Because I was called and asked to do this. That is what faithfulness looks like sometimes. I'm not trying to put a, a, a crown on my head with this. I'm just saying sometimes you need to step into that Facebook conversation with truth and not with foolishness. Sometimes you need to identify that the prophet is a false one and the teacher is a foolish one and they are leading people to the swift destruction of their souls. Too often, we as Christian believers have tried to play nice with the evil in our world. You don't play with snakes. You kill snakes, right? The great shepherd crushes Satan. You know, we have this lovely image of Jesus in his servanthood being, you know, sort of this precious moment, soft focus, you know, pastel that only sort of like, you know, pats children in their heads and hands out candy. But that same precious moments, Jesus also has fire in his eyes and a sword of truth coming out of his mouth. And I find it interesting, particularly when you read the Gospels over and over again, that the people who society says are worthless thought Jesus was their friend. He went to all the really cool parties in the Gospels. Right? Like, he's always at the tax collector's house, right? And yet the religious leaders cannot stand him. And all he has for them is a sharply returned question. Right? They always come with a test. They got a question for Jesus. Well, there was one movie in which you see them sort of conspiring with themselves, seeing who's going to ask the question next. And they're like, oh, teacher, I have a question for you. What is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Is that not how you read it? And the lawyer says, yes. He goes, so how's that going for you? Good. Right? I love it when he asks about the, the, the who is my neighbor. Because it says, it says, the lawyer, trying to justify himself, asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you know what Jesus says? That person who you don't think is even human anymore, 
That's your neighbor. Right? Verse, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 says it very clearly. There are indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their, follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. May it not be said of us that we, for the sake of political correctness or social peace, did not defend truth with the shepherd's staff. We must ever be on guard for a drift in ourselves away from the truth and also away from the spirit of gentleness. And again, gentleness is not passiveness. It is ultimately strength being properly used. The second path is the result of rambling. Some will go quickly to ruin, and others will wander around. They will call me, but I won't answer them. They will search for me, but they won't find me. How many do we interact with in our daily lives who are adrift, looking for truth? And we have not given them the answer. Now, the Bible describes the idea of this this lost adrift life with the words of carousing, which is a really nice old Englishy kind of word, right? There are so many people who are filling up the void in their life with party and pleasure when they need to find peace. They are set themselves a sail on a turbulent ocean of opinion and popularity, of pleasure and self-aggrandizement. As long as I get those likes, I'm full. I've heard many stories in recent years about people who have killed themselves because they didn't get enough likes on their Facebook page. How many more of us are getting that dopamine rush when we see the little heart icons come up? How many of us may not be addicted to alcohol or to opiates, but to popularity? And to prestige. How many of us are drinking deep from the water that will not quench our thirst? And it's interesting, going back to the idea that Jesus went to all the good parties. I'm not telling you to not have friends and not have fun. I'm telling you to live a life of self-control anchored in the life of wisdom. Right? Right? 
I don't know if y'all have come to one of our very off-the-chain Memorial Day picnics. They are legendary in the Cincinnati area. But we do not have to not... That was too many negatives in that sentence. Sorry, let me try to say that again. We don't have to fear fun to be faithful. Even Jesus was accused of having too much fun. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, and it's parallel in Luke chapter 7, verses 34 through 35, the Pharisees come and say, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, but they have said of me, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus responds, yet wisdom is vindicated by her life. Right? Because as all of these people are his friends, he is able to talk to them on a one-on-one relationship. I don't think Jesus watered down what he was saying to the tax collectors and sinners. I don't think he was telling them that they were fine, that they didn't have to change anything, that they are, you know, uh, perfectly okay. I think he cut right to the core of them too. And yet they still liked him. That paradox should be something we should think about. How is it that we can show someone so much love and friendship that we can say to their face, you're going the wrong way, and they still are Facebook friends? Right? <clears throat> And how many of us are carousing in a world that needs truth? Second Peter verse, chapter two, verse 13, sorry, chapter two, verse 13. And they, these false teachers, will be paid back for the harm, paid back with harm for the harm they have done. For they considered a pleasure to carouse in the broad daylight and have become spots and blemishes in your fellowships delighting in their deceptions while they feast among you. What that's saying is, there are people in the churches, in the churches, who are carousing. Who are wasting their lives and yours for the harm they're doing. The judgment of the Lord comes first to the church, right? So as we look on this world with sort of the, and some of you are too young to remember, the church lady from Saturday Night Live, with our lips pursed up and our purse lifted up, ready to smack the sin out of everyone, we need to turn that purse on ourselves first. Maybe we need a smack in the face. Because self-control born out of love is the path we are called to. Right? Because on one end of that, going back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus here, on one end of that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Right after that, it says, teach your children. 
when you get up and when you sit down and when you lie down and in the morning and in the evening and every day. Your life emulates the truth that you follow. And Leviticus, as we're coming to this love your neighbor as yourself verse, it talks about who you interact with and how you interact with them. And gives you a lot of these weird things, right? So in that holiness code, there's a discussion of sexuality and also polycotton blend. Right? It's not only who you can do it with, but what kind of sheets you do it on. You didn't think I'm joking. Go and read it. It says an abomination to the Lord is mixing linen and wool. Y'all better check them clothing tags pretty soon. Right? Because God's holiness emanates all the way down to the seeds you plant in your field, the clothes you wear in the back, and the relationships you have. Nothing. Nothing is not part of the life of holiness. So we've had the path, of, the result of ruin, the result of rambling, but at least for me, I get to end on a happy note in verse 33. But whoever listens to me will live securely and will not be disturbed by the dread of danger. There is a result which is refuge. And our refuge is wisdom himself. Because all of us have messed up. I'm pretty sure you're going to get new shoes because I stepped on your toes enough today. There's a lot for you to think about this week. And there's a lot to think about here as well. Because when I wrote this, I was like, ooh, that's going to be, ooh, Ooh, you're talking to me, Jesus. Mm. I got preached that for a whole week. You just got it for about 30 minutes, okay? So just know that. But in the end, I am not my own savior. I cling to one to whose blood was shed for my sake, who took my death and gave me his resurrection. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says in Romans. Then it says, but the free free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is wisdom. Not a path governed by foolishness or frivolity or popularity or pleasure, but a life governed by love and self-control, and wisdom, and surrender. When Christ came to live among us, he not only lived the perfect life we could not live, he also took the sin that we could not repay. He exchanged for us our ruined, tattered, bankrupt lives and gave us access to all his glory. Let us pray. Dearest Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you that you step on our toes and that you tell us the truth. 
And we pray, Lord, that you will guide us in your ways, that how we behave will reflect what we believe, and how we deal with others will reflect on whom we depend, and ultimately that our conduct will reflect our contents and our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.